of prayer. Would you take whatever it is that's on your heart and on your mind this morning and just take that to the Lord right now? And then after you do that, would you pray for somebody else? Maybe it's somebody you know who is watching this morning by live stream. Or maybe it's somebody that you're seated near or you've talked to this morning on your way into the auditorium. Everybody's struggling right now. Let's pray for one another. I'll give you a moment to pray and then I'll lead us before we uh, open up the word of God. Father, we don't like to struggle. We like to feel confident. We like to feel competent. We like to feel on top of things and in control. And if there's anything that we have learned during this time with this pandemic, with all of the confusion, we understand now just how helpless we are, how frail we really are, how quickly things can unravel, and how out of control we are. So, Father, we come to you today to say thank you for this. Not that we like it, not that we wish it would continue. We're asking you to relieve us from all of this stuff. But in the meantime, while this is happening, thank you for revealing to us how much we depend upon you for every breath, for every beat of the heart, for everything that we have. We don't take life for granted, and we don't take our time for granted. And during this time... When so many things have kind of been taken from us and some things added to us and things that we don't like, we've come to understand this world really is not our home, that we've got a heavenly home that you prepared for us. And in the meantime, you walk with us through these turbulent times and the word of God never lies, never misleads us. It never contradicts itself. We never have to go to one passage of scripture and hear one thing about salvation and go to another and hear another thing about it. It always harmonizes together. Thank you for your word. Now thank you that you've placed us also into a body, which means that we are connected by the Holy Spirit. We're connected by our redemption through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for one another that we might be strong, that we might look to you, that this might drive us to you, that we might hasten to you instead of lingering back and instead of hanging back. Father, let us run to you. Let other people see Jesus in us. Heal us. Strengthen us. Build us up. Comfort us. Whatever it is we need today, we are looking to you for it. And we pray all of this because we are confident in you and in your presence, in your power, and in your purpose. We love you and thank you for loving us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And if you agree, say amen. Go ahead and have a seat and turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. And let's go to Exodus chapter 11. We're going to cover an entire chapter today, but uh, it's a short one. And as we 
think about this. The setup for this is God is getting ready to deliver Israel. It's time. It's kind of like waiting for fruit to ripen. You can pick fruit too soon and uh, it's no good. But when it's ripe and when it's ready, then it's time to harvest and you better harvest it then. Well, that's what's happening now. The time has come for the deliverance. And like ripened fruit, it's time for this to take place. Now, unfortunately, uh, the people that put the chapters and the verses in the Bible sometimes got it wrong. The chapters and the verses are not inspired. When Moses is writing this, he did not do the Paul Harvey thing. If you're old, you know what I mean. Page 3, you know. He didn't do chapter 11 and do all of that. He didn't divide it like that. Those were put in much, much, much later. And I'm glad they did it because that helps us find verses so that we can all be on the same page. But sometimes they divide up a story. Sometimes they divide up a thought. You remember in chapter 10, the darkness has come on the land and Moses is before Pharaoh and there's that last exchange where Pharaoh says, you get out of here and if I ever see you again, I'll kill you. And Moses said, you won't see my face anymore. Well, then we get to chapter 11 and it looks like God speaks again and then all of a sudden Moses is talking to Pharaoh. What's that about? Okay, let me, let me give you a clue. Verses 1 through 3 in chapter 11 are kind of like the Lord giving us, for you Star Wars fans, a prequel. This is in parenthesis. Verse 1 all the way to verse 3 in parenthesis. And he's telling us what the Lord had already told him. How did Moses know this was the end? Because he's going to recap it in verses 1 through 3. This is what God had said. In fact... It wouldn't do any violence at all to the word of God or to the Hebrew if we said, and the Lord had said to Moses, okay? Because this is how Moses knows it. So let's start in verse 1. And the Lord had said, let's put it in there, to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and afterward he will let you go from here. When he lets you go... He will surely drive you out of here altogether. He's going to have a complete change of heart. Verse 2. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man... Now, if you have a King James Version, there's an unfortunate translation there. It says, borrow from his neighbor. That's bad, bad word there, the way they translated that. Uh, better to have it like the New King James and other translations do. Let every man... Ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people, meaning Israel, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. And that just means he was respected. Not necessarily liked or followed, but he was really feared and respected. Verse 4. Then Moses said, thus says, and this is where we pick up the story from the end of chapter 10. This is the conclusion of Pharaoh and Moses' meeting. Then Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight... I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn 
of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as, uh, as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue. Some translations shall a dog even growl or bark against man or beast. Why? That you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel, between the world and between his people. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you. Why? So that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his hand. So the Lord has it all set up and rigged so that all ten plagues, culminating in this last one, this horrible plague, uh, is going to take place. And the Egyptians put great stock in their firstborn. A lot of cultures do that. But they believe that, uh, especially for Pharaoh, the one that was the firstborn is the one that was of God and kind of God himself. And they sort of worshipped those things. And so God, in one last thing, is going against this one last God of the Egyptians to say, no, it's not the firstborn, it's not Pharaoh that is God, I am God, and I'm going to show you and I'm going to demonstrate my power that life is in my hand. And so we've seen that all the way through from the very first plague where the Nile is turned to blood and all of a sudden the uh, life source, what the Egyptians thought was the life source, turned out to be a uh, uh, something of death and disgust. And all the way through, the gods of Egypt are being attacked. And you remember that God had said about the nation of Israel, Israel is my firstborn. It's as if God is saying to Pharaoh, you've messed with my firstborn, now I'm going to mess with yours. And when this all happens, you're going to know that I'm not a God to be trifled with. Now, as we've said before every week, this is also so that the Israelis will know that as well. They've got to believe God. How do you get over a million people to follow one man out into the wilderness to who knows what? Now, I know Moses had been telling them, there's a great land promised to your ancestor Abraham, but that had been 400 years before. None of them had seen it. None of them knew where it was. None of them understood anything like that. Who is this guy, and what is he going to do, and where are we going to go, and how are we going to get there? And I mean, it took a great step of faith for the Israelites to follow Moses, didn't it? They didn't know what was going to happen other than what Moses had told them. And so they had to trust Moses, and they had more so to trust the God that Moses represented. So when Moses said, I'm here and I'm sent by the God of your fathers, 
Well, it's going to take the slaves some time to get to that point to where they're going to follow Moses because they believe in the God that Moses represents. So all of these plagues were to do something for the Egyptians, but also something for God's people. And notice how many times we've seen that uh, it, it's made, the, uh, the statement is made that there's a difference between the Egyptians and the Israelis. There's a difference between the people of the world and the people of God, and it's still that way. But they're getting ready to go through some great, great, great change, something that they have not had in generations, and that is freedom. And they're going to go back to a land, again, that they've never seen, and they're going to have to conquer the land and all of that. You know the story. And so in great faith, they're going to have to take that first step. Now, that's always been a problem for them, and uh, they are not going to take very long. You remember they said, we're going to go three days into the wilderness, and then we're going to offer sacrifices and have a big feast, and yet we find that three days after this, what are they doing? They're at the Red Sea complaining that God has brought them out there, or Moses, I guess, has brought them out there to die. I mean, it doesn't take them very long to doubt. It doesn't take them very long not to really believe or be very faith-filled in all of this. And it shows you the goodness and the grace of God. So whenever you come to a point like this of great change that can bring some turmoil and some questions about it, think about what these verses are telling us. And I want you to think about four words here. First of all, think about the word foundation. Think about the word uh, future, right? Think about the word father and fortress. And then... Um, when you get down to the last part of these verses, I, I want you to think about the formula that God uses. There's a way that God works. So let's talk about each of these individually. First of all, when we talk about the foundation, it's those verses that are in parentheses. Why was Moses so bold? And why were the children of Israel, the slaves, so willing to follow Moses? Because they had heard from God. They had a past. And they had a past relationship with God. They had past promises from God. Covenants that go all the way back to uh, Abraham, their ancestor. And they are still in effect. Now, what that means is that when Moses shows up on the scene, he doesn't just show up and say, hey, let's have a revolt. Let's get out of here. And I mean, Jim Jones did that. And uh, all of those people committed suicide in Guyana, if you remember, in the late 70s. There are all kinds of weirdos. There are all kinds of cult leaders that lead people astray. But Moses isn't saying, I've got a better idea or I can secure your future. He comes proclaiming the God of your forefather Abraham who made a covenant with him is the God who is acting on your behalf. And so God is revealing himself and revealing what he is going to do. How many times does God show up and he says something like this? I am the God of your father David to Solomon. Or he shows up to somebody else and he goes, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And he goes back to the past and back to what he has said before. And that is the foundation 
that everyone stands firm on. And that's what happens in verses 1 through 3. Moses is able to stand firm in front of Pharaoh because of what God had said. So how well do you know what God has said? How well do you know his word? Say, so, well, I wish I knew it better, and um, I, I just haven't done a good job with all of that. Well, you can start today, because today is the present, but it'll be the past tomorrow, won't it? And whatever you do today makes a difference on Monday. Whatever you do on Monday makes a difference on Tuesday. It's never too late to start and to get firm and sure in the Word of God. You need to know the Word of God. He is the God of the past, the unchanging God, the God that has given us covenants and promises all throughout His Word. And we need to know that and we need to stand firm on the past. But understand this, whenever you lay a foundation, nobody lays a foundation and says, hey, leave it there, that's a great foundation. The foundation is always for the purpose of building something on it. A foundation always says this. A foundation says there is a future. There is something that is coming in addition to this. And so when we think about the second point here, we think about the future. God has a plan for them, and God has a way for them to get there. He knows exactly what he is doing. He's not winging it. God is not ad-libbing on any of this. This is all settled, and it is all sure, and there is a future. And I want you to think about the uh, Israelis and what they have to think about. There's a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, for you and me, it's like, what does that mean? Well, it's a place that means the milk would mean that all of your uh, needs are going to be met. Everything you need for life is going to be there. And then for honey, it's also going to be a place of sweetness. It's going to be a place that is home. It's going to be a place where you can settle down and you can own land and you can have your own herds and flocks and you can till your own land and you can build your own houses. And it's going to be sweet as you see your children and your grandchildren and maybe even your great-grandchildren. It's flowing with milk, everything you need for life, and with honey, everything that makes life sweet and wonderful. That's the future that God has promised the Israelis. And they've got to believe that. And they've got to focus on that because the wilderness is not going to be easy, is it? The wilderness is going to take longer than they ever thought it was going to take. In fact, as you know, that original a uh, generation of slaves is not going to see the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. It's going to be a long time, much longer than they thought. There was a story about a little boy that was going across the southwest on an old steam engine uh, train. No air conditioning. It's all open. It's dusty. It's dry. It's hot. And the kind of clothes that they wore back in the late 1800s, man, no shorts and tank tops there, were there? And so they're on the train and they're going. It's slow. They have to stop every once in a while for, uh, to fill up the tanks with water. And uh, oh, everybody's getting grumpy and they're getting tired except for this one little boy. And this one little boy, every day his smile is just a little bit bigger. And there's a little bit more pep in his step, we might say. And finally, someone said to him, little boy, are you not hot and tired and worn out from all of this? And he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, I am. He goes, it's hotter than I thought it would be. The trip is taking longer than I thought it would take. And they said, then 
how in the world and why in the world are you able to smile? And the little boy said, because when we get to California, my father is there to meet me. And I'm excited about my father. And so the heat and the time is worth it. I'm going to see my father. And that's the way it is for the people of God. Whatever the wilderness experience may be in our life, there's a promised land. There's a land of milk and honey that we're going to. There is a future and a hope that God has given to us. And so when we get trapped in now, and we get trapped in our situation now, we have to remember there's a better day coming. Do you remember that story about the old lady that was uh, meeting with the preacher? I think of two stories. There was one where the, uh, the new young preacher was meeting with an elderly lady and he's talking there and he's kind of nervous about what he's going to talk about and he happens to notice there's a dish there with peanuts and he just starts kind of snacking on the peanuts and when he's finished he goes, oh no, I've eaten your peanuts. She goes, oh son, don't worry about it. I don't have any teeth. I buy chocolate covered peanuts and I just suck the chocolate off of them and I can't chew them anyway. Well, that's kind of gross. But there's another story that's also told about the preacher who went to the old lady to plan her funeral. And she said, when I die, I want to make sure that when people come by and see my body in my casket, that I'm holding a fork. And the preacher is kind of puzzled. And he said, why do you want to have a fork in your hand? And she said, because whenever you're eating dinner at someone's house and you finish the main course, when the hostess says, oh, keep your fork, that means something better is coming. It's about time for dessert. And I want everybody that walks by my casket to see the fork in my hand and know there's something better coming than just this. In other words, what she was saying is keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eye on the future. Keep your eye on the Lord. Keep your eyes on heaven, as Brother Dale reminded us. We are to set our minds on things above where Christ is. And that will get you through times like we are going through now. Let's go and let's think about number three. When you are looking at this, reading this scripture, you notice here that God says that the firstborn of Egypt and everything is going to die. One guy that um, I read said that he believes that the firstborn, even if there were grown parents who were the firstborn in their family, they died as well. Don't know that for sure, but I know that the firstborn of everything else, all the way down to the animals, all were going to die. Now, God said, though, there's going to be a difference for the people of God. Not even a dog is going to growl in the land of Goshen because God wants them to know there's a difference. Did you know God wants the world today to know that there's a difference between you and everybody else in the world? Now, it doesn't mean you're better than them. You're uh, ever bit the sinner, and you uh, would be bound for hell if it were not for the grace of God. And when we say there, but for the grace of God go I, we really need to mean that because that really is true. And when we think about it, though, God has redeemed us, brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and he has put his spirit within us. He's given us his word. He's placed us in the family of God, and he wants us to live differently with the blessing of God in spite of the darkness around us, with the power of God and with the peace of God in spite of the turmoil that's all around us. 
And that's part of what sanctification is. We get saved and our sins are forgiven. Now God is showing his power in us to make a difference between us and the world and to show the difference between us and the world so that we might glorify and honor the Lord. And so over and over in these stories we've been reading about this, it was God's intention to show my people are not just average, run-of-the-mill, normal people who are struggling through life and living under a curse. My people are blessed. My people are delivered. My people are liberated. My people are under my blessing and not under my curse and under my wrath. And God wants us to live in a way where we are separate and different and distinct so that we can witness to people, glorify people, and uh, glorify the Lord and talk to people about the Lord and talk about His grace. And through that, what is God doing? He's protecting His people. He is protecting them. Why? Because he's a father to them. He said, Israel is my firstborn. He's also a fortress to them. He's going to tell them what to do so that they don't fall under this tenth plague, this horrible plague of death. And so, that is the father and the fortress. And can I remind you that while you walk through this confusing world, you can uh, listen to everybody and watch everybody. Some people ask me, you know, where do you stand on all of this stuff with masks and the pandemic? And you know what I say, honestly? I don't really know. Because whatever I think depends on the last article I read. And I'll read one and I go, well, that makes sense. That's where I land. Then I'll read another one and go, oh, well, that kind of makes sense. And the truth is, I don't think anybody really knows, much less you or me. So you know what I try to do? Just keep my eyes on my Father. Trust in Him that He's going to keep me safe. And He is going to be my fortress, my shield, my deliverer. Think about all of those things that we sing and we think about. That's got to be reality in your life, folks. And He is our Father who has promised to provide all of my needs according to His riches in glory. A father and a fortress. That's what Israel experienced. God watched over them and those plagues didn't hit them. And then the last thing you'll notice here, that God has a formula that he's working and he is working his mighty power in even Pharaoh's life. You know, Solomon told us in Proverbs, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wills. I believe that. And I believe that our president, that his heart is in the hand of God. Now, what is God going to do with that? I don't know. But I believe that God's got his hand on his heart. I believe that's true for the dictator in North Korea. I believe that's true anywhere and anytime, regardless of political persuasion or party or anything like that. God has their heart in his hand. And what is God doing with Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh might have been inclined under some of those plagues to go, okay, okay, it's not worth it, get out of here. And God goes, mm -mm, not yet, not yet. I'm not done with you. And I'm not finished showing my power. And I haven't fully convinced my people yet. And I'm going to demolish all of your false religion here. Not yet. And he holds Pharaoh's heart. And he even tells Moses, not yet. It's coming. There's one more plague. And it's not going to be too soon. And it's not going to be too late. Why? 
Because God works in this formula where his presence and his power and his plan, all of those things we think about, they're never conflicting one another. So we have a God here who never has to go back. Uh, I remember Brother Dale and I were at a shepherd's conference and they had a question and answer thing. And somebody asked John MacArthur a question and he goes, let me look in my MacArthur study Bible to see what I said about that. Wouldn't that be embarrassing to say something different than what you had written? Well, as humans, we tend to do that. But God will never have that problem. He'll never have to go back and go, I said that. I promised that. He knows everything that he promised. You'll never have a time in the future where God will say, well, that wasn't the way it was supposed to have worked. Well, that didn't work out the way I thought it was going to. People say that all the time, but God never has to say that. When you look at God, you will never have a God who loses any of his people. You'll never have a God that as a father in a fortress, he didn't have us protected and well-armed and ready to face the battles that we're going to face. And you'll never find him being distant and uncaring because he is your Father, and he hears your cry, and he walks with you, and he carries you through the difficulties of life. He's your fortress, and he's your father. And you'll never have a God that said, well, part of my plan came out, and it worked when I used my power, but my love and mercy worked against things, and this is just a great big mess. He's got it all put together exactly right where it all works out and it works according to the good pleasure of his will. We forget that sometimes. Let me just go through and give you a few verses to think about in your own life that correspond with these points. It's not just for ancient Israel. We do stand on ancient truth, but it's also relevant truth for today. The foundation, when we talk about that and we think about uh, God's past works and words to us being truthful. I want you to think about the God who has said that I know what I am doing, I know what I have declared, and I've declared the end from the beginning, and uh, it's all going to happen exactly the way that I have purposed is the way that uh, Isaiah put it. And uh, let me catch up with my notes because I went way, way without them here and uh, get to the end, and we'll wrap this thing up. I want you to remember, uh, where's my reference here, that the Bible says in Psalm 100, here it is, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Now here's the relevant part. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. And we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Notice how he makes a distinction between us and the rest of the world. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. In fact, the Bible says in John chapter 6, quoting Jesus, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will in no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him, the Father, the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up 
on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And Psalm 91, 2 says, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and in him will I trust. When you think about verses like that, don't you see everything we've been talking about here? In fact, in Ephesians chapter 3, 20 and 21, it says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, not just for a little while, not just for now, but to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I mean, verses like this just give us such encouragement, and they remind us that God is not trying to figure out what he is going to do, and he is not changing his plan as he goes through all of this, because we have a future and we have a hope in the Lord, all based on the foundation that we have. 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord's foundation stands Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. I mean, all of this stuff. Think about in uh, Romans chapter 8. That I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. First Peter tells us that we have an inheritance that's uh, it's not defilable. It's not uh, something that can be robbed. It's an imperishable, unfading uh, inheritance kept in heaven for you. I mean, all of these kind of things tell us. Foundation. Yes, our foundation is not political. Our foundation is spiritual. And Jesus is the rock on which we stand. We think about him being our father and our fortress. He is our deliverer even. The one who comes to our rescue. He's the one who protects us. He's the one who loves us. And the one who nurtures us. When we, when we think about the Lord giving us a future. And with that future comes tremendous hope. And we don't look into the nasty now and say we are stuck and mired down here in this because we're not. There's a deliverance that is coming for us. And all of this happens because the Lord is working in us and he is working through us. And how much can you do? I don't know. But I know this. He can do exceedingly abundantly above anything you can do. He can do exceedingly abundantly above anything that you can even pray about. He can do exceedingly abundantly above anything you can even dream about. God goes beyond that. And how does he do it? According to the power that works in us. Which means we are here for a reason. We're here for a purpose. We were made for such a time as this. And as God takes us through this time, he does it so that he might reveal himself to us in greater ways than ever before, that he might use us as a witness to his power more than ever before. And when it's all said and done and we get to heaven and see it all put together, we will say, coronavirus, government turmoil, Election year, lies, censorship, turmoil, and all of that. We'll look at all of, all of that and we'll say, Oh Lord, you did all things well. Rest in that and trust in that. Do you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord? 
You see, if you do, you've entered into what we've talked about today. If you don't, will you repent of your sins today? Will you put your trust in Jesus that he, the innocent one, as God in human flesh, went to the cross and bore the wrath of God in your place for your sins? And that three days later, God raised him from the dead. And that he's seated now at the right hand of God the Father. And will you confess him as Lord? For the Bible gives a promise. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord. Can you finish the verse, church? Shall be saved. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? And there are people that are bewildered today. There are people that are stumbling. There are people that are walking in darkness. There are people who are looking here and looking there and running to and fro. And you know what? They just might listen to you where they wouldn't have listened six months ago. They just might be interested when they see the peace and they see how your life is solid in the midst of all of this. And you can tell them what Jesus has done for you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, as we conclude this time together, we conclude by saying thank you, Lord, that... All of this stuff that seems so random, so out of control, so scary, it's still under your feet. It's under your control. Our lives are hid with Christ, and you indeed are our life. In you we live, and we move, and we have our being. Thank you that coronavirus is not Lord. Thank you that the CDC is not Lord. Thank you particularly for that. Thank you that the media is not Lord. Thank you that friends and enemies on social media, these people that are blown about by the wind, thank you that they're not Lord. But thank you we can look to heaven and we see a throne. And at the right hand of that throne, we see another throne. And there our Lord sets. And we can confess together that Jesus is, say it, church. Lord, amen and amen.